All right, Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be finishing off chapter 8 here tonight. And if you saw the announcement, we're looking at a topic we picked up briefly about a year or so ago. Kind of at the end of the service, we tacked on to this a little bit. So we're going to get into it a little bit more because Hebrews gets into those scriptures. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now look at this. He's been, he is, he has a more excellent ministry is how it classifies it. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Now look, now see the emphasis here. It's on the ministry. There's a ministry that Jesus has picked up here, and it's a more excellent ministry. It's a more excellent ministry than what he was comparing it to, which, of course, was the priest and the uh, uh, sacrifices and all the things that were going on there. So he has obtained a more excellent ministry <clears throat> inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. The mediator of the first covenant was Moses, but he was a man. He couldn't necessarily mediate for man or on, on God's side because he was a man. He was one of the ones that was beneficiary of it as well. Jesus was the better mediator. Because he was both God and man. So inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. Which was established on better promises. The promises for the, the covenant under, under Jesus. Those promises were better. Because the promises under the first covenant could only go so far. For if the first covenant had been faultless. Then no place would have been sought for a second. He's going to go into it here in just a little bit, some of the prophecies that were regarding this second, uh, this second covenant, this more improved, better and improved covenant. But he is a mediator. The first mediator, of course, was Moses. The priests were involved in the sacrifices. Now there's not going to be any sacrifices and there won't be any need for a priest in this sacrifice. We're going to have a high priest and his role is going to be different than the high priest's role before. He's also not going to have to be replaced. So the first covenant had its shortcomings. Comings. So a second covenant was sought. It's not because it was found to be defective, which is what he's coming across here. A lot of the Jewish folks would get kind of um, bothered by the fact that you're saying that what we have is defective or it became defective, that God did something defective. He says, no, it was put in place. It was not supposed to be able to accomplish any more than it was, it was uh, purposed for, which was to point people to the way of Christ. But we said... That, but God had already put another way in. Way back in the book of Genesis, he said that it, Jesus Christ would be coming, the Messiah would be coming. Of course, he didn't call him that in the book of Genesis, but eventually, he was called that. Now, go on here to verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now, this is the prophecy. Prophecy comes out of Jeremiah. We put the reference for you in your outline there. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So again, this prophetic word comes out of Jeremiah chapter 31. 
The prophecy is brought up to show that the plan of God had always been for something better. God did not come along and find it defective. He had a better plan in place. And that this particular covenant, the old covenant under Moses, had a, um, an expiration date. It was expected to expire. It was expected to be temporary. It's not something that suddenly came up. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets saw it as temporary. God saw it as temporary. It was predicted to be temporary, not a permanent solution. So for the Jewish people to continually look at this as a permanent solution, he's saying, no, that's wrong. We cannot look at this as a permanent solution because God did not look at it as a permanent solution. Because God didn't, we can't. And that's why the Old Testament is brought in. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy is that he brings, the writer here brings this in in chapter 8 and then brings the same prophecy in again in chapter 10. He brings it in twice and quotes the whole thing. So it's a temporary in, in nature. The original covenant with Israel was deficient in that it was limited in what it could accomplish. And we talked about some of those things before and what it, the limitations on its accomplishments. And the people did not continue it in any way. And he even brings that out in this. Let's read it over again. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. At the time of this prophecy, it is divided. There's a house of Judah and there's a house of Israel. There's the northern tribes and there's the southern tribes. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because I did not, did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So we made the first covenant. God did his part on that covenant, but the children of Israel did not do theirs. They didn't continue in it. So what's the sense in having to continue on if the people didn't continue in it themselves? And they kept falling from it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now notice this. He doesn't have the house of Israel and house of Judah. He brings them back together again. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. <clears throat> I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's this sound like? New Testament. None of them shall teach his neighbor and not his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Because the way, the way we come to know God is now different than the way they did. We get to know God because he can live in us. And he was not able to do that. Under the old covenant, the Spirit of God lived in the Holy of Holies. That was not what the Spirit of God wanted to do. But the Spirit of God had to live in the Holy of Holies because of the uh, nature of men. But once Jesus came and paid the price, the Holy Spirit was poured out and now He lived where He wanted to live, which is inside us. So that was the goal of it there. So that's the introduction to this part. And then He gets into here in verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, if you were here, there's some time at the end of the service we kind of got into this a little bit. I was surprised at the number of comments of this. And we got, I don't think we ever visited again. But I figure we visit again here now. There is a there is a thought, there's a doctrine that came out of this, and it's in the lives of uh, most Christians, that when God forgives our sins, He forgets them. And it's verses like this that bring this to mind. Now, this is a this is a quote from the Old Testament, so it's in the Old Testament, and then it's quoted in the New. So we have it in both places. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
So it, it, it's the, the idea that has come from this is that God forgives our sins and once He forgives them, He forgets them. Now we're supposed to forgive as God forgives. So the, the corresponding doctrine that comes in is that we must forgive and forget. How many people have been able to forget everything they have forgiven? Alright, so if the, if the enemy can get in and if he can change the doctrine, he changes our expectation. And once our expectation is changed, then what he can do is he can hold us up to a standard that God is not even held to and show that we are deficient and that we are not forgiving correctly. I'll, I'll lay this case out for you. God does not forget your sins. Well, wait a minute. There's a scripture right there. It says, hey, we remember them no more. Now, here's the problem that comes in with that. The enemy has taught this to a lot of churches and a lot of Christians have picked up on this and they believe that God will forget their sins. So, redemption for us now becomes the, uh, a matter of God's memory. What will God remember? What if God does remember my sins? But you see, we've totally gotten off of what God has to, to say on this thing. Now, I want to show you some scriptures here before, before we get into this. Because what we're going to show you in scripture is more powerful than that false doctrine that came out. He says, I will be, uh, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, I put this in your outline for you. If the idea being conveyed is that because sin is no longer remembered, it is no longer against us, then we are dependent upon the memory of the Father instead of the blood of the Son. Now, which do you think holds a greater case? That the Word of God is pointing to the memory of the Father or the blood of the Son? Now, the doctrine of the New Testament is not in the remembrance of our sin, but of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that when God looks upon us, He doesn't look upon us as our sin. He looks upon us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That bypasses any memory of sin, doesn't it? Now, in 2 Kings chapter 20, 24, I'm just going to read a few verses here of this. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came up against Jehoiakim, became his vessel for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Now, Jehoiakim, if you don't remember your, your kings, and it's been a little while since we've been on him, so you know our memory can sometimes forget. His father was Josiah. Josiah was the originator of one of the greatest revivals that, this, uh, that Israel had ever seen. But he had gone into the temple and found books that they had not read. And they found judgments against them that they had not known. They had not been taught to them. They had not read these things. And when they found out, they repented and they became, came before God. They had the, the, the sackcloth and the ashes and they repented before God. And a great revival came upon the land. And they went through the land and they wiped out all of the things of idolatry. And they came and they worshiped God. Now, in the doctrine of forgive and forget, 
if that doctrine is true, then when they came and they repented, what would God have done with their sin? He would have forgotten it, right? So that means if God has forgotten it, then he wouldn't remember it. Okay, now let's pick up here where we left off. Left off of verse 2. Verse 3. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. Does Manasseh come before or after King Josiah? He comes before. Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. They were all before. So if under Josiah they had a great revival and if forgive and forget is a doctrine then God should have forgotten the sins of the past. If God forgot the sins of the past, why is he remembering them here? Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now, I just brought one case out from the Old Testament. We can go back there and get some other ones too. What about when uh, Saul executed some of the Gibeonites? And do you remember that that sin was being held against them and David had to make restitution for that? If David, in all his repentance and being a man after God's own heart, why wouldn't the sin have been forgiven then? Why did he have to go back? Why did God remember this against them? All right, now we're going to, that's the Old Testament. Let's take a look at the New Testament. In uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? What he is saying here is, if my brother comes up to me and he sins against me and um, I forgive that and then he comes up again and he comes up again and he comes up again, he says, shall I forgive him up to seven times? If you are going to forgive somebody seven times, it, must, it means you must remember the first six. Otherwise you lose count. It is impossible to forgive someone seven times unless you remember the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. You can't do it. Does Jesus address the issue of the seventh time? Not, not at all. He says, no, you ought to keep on going. It's up to 70 times. Well, he says he increases that, goes to 70. That means you now have to remember the sin if you go take it literally. And of course, he's just saying just keep forgiving them. We understand that. But if you took it literally, that means you have to remember the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, all the way up to the sixty ninth time in order to get to seventy. So apparently he's not addressing the forget issue, is he? Now let's keep on going. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy seven no, seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him. 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded he be sold with his wife and children all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he will not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, 
Now remember, this is Jesus telling the parable. A parable is a made-up story that is made up to convey a teaching. It does not have to be a real-life account. It just needs to be something that went on that you can teach people something from. So every character in this story is something that Jesus made up and put in here. It's a parable. He's not given a narrative. It's a parable. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Why are the servants grieved? Because they saw that he was forgiven a great debt and then went out and didn't extend that forgiveness to others. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. How is it that he can remember that he forgave if the teaching is forgive and forget? How does that work? If truly he was given a parable of the forgiveness of God, and truly the, the doctrine is forgive and forget, then what he would have said was, well, I don't remember forgiving him. But that's not what goes on. He remembers what he forgave. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his fresh trespasses. All right, this is New Testament doctrine now. And so what we have here is Jesus is saying this. If you act like the servant in this parable, then my father will do to you just as I told you in this parable. Which means the father extended forgiveness. That forgiveness will be repealed if the servant does not go out and extend forgiveness as well. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He comes straight out and say it. So that Jesus is coming straight out and saying, this is what my father is going to do. And remember, Jesus only says what his father tells him to say. And he only um, uh, does what he sees his father do. That's it. So that means he's seen firsthand this go on. Never does Jesus institute a doctrine that he forgives and forgets. So what does it mean when the scripture says he will not remember our sins? It's quite simple. It's not really hard at all. You don't need a Hebrew uh, scholar or Greek scholar or anybody like that at all. What it means is simply this. God will not remember your sins against you. It has nothing to do with his memory. It has everything to do that he will not hold it against you. Just as in the case with this story here with the parable. The master still remembered that he forgave a great debt. But he was not holding that against the servant. He had let it go until the servant withheld forgiveness to someone else. Now, see, this is the problem that comes in. This doctrine of forgive and forget has gotten into the church. And people have believed it. I have to forgive and forget. How many times have you ever heard other Christians? You got to forgive and forget. You got to forgive and forget. It's a doctrine out of the pit of hell. Because it's not supported from the word of God. And it gets us off of doing the things that God wants us to do. So we become focused 
on forgiving, and the only way that I've truly forgiven according to God's standards is if I forget that the event occurred. But I don't, I don't have a way to my, wipe out my memory. I still remember those events that people have done. How many can say, I have remembered? So by that definition, I haven't forgiven. And so the devil comes up and he uses that against us because how many scriptures are in the Word of God about your prayers being hindered by a lack of forgiveness? So he can come up and attack your faith because your forgiveness doesn't meet the standard of God, which is to forgive and forget. Therefore, that's why your prayers aren't being answered. And I just say, well, I guess that's true because I haven't quite forgiven and forgotten. I'm still remembering that thing. And so we get caught up in this, in this loop that God never intended. But understand, God is our standard. We are not called to forgive any different than he does. God does not forget your sins in that he doesn't, he is not able to remember them. God does not remember your sins against you that when you stand before him, he does not say, wait a minute, here's this, and here's this, and here's this, and here's this. Here's the beauty of it all, folks. God has every bit of those sins in his mind and looks at you and sees Jesus. <laughs> He sees every one of those sins you did against his servants, every one of those sins you did against his son, every single one of those sins you did against his word, and all he sees is Jesus. He doesn't have to forget all those things in order to forgive you. You're not relying on the memory of God. You're relying on the blood of his son. Now, the example that he gave us for forgiveness is the example that we're supposed to go out there and do. You do not have to forget the sins that have been done against you. And how many times has God called into remembrance the sins that Israel has done, no matter how many times they had repented? Under Hezekiah, did they not repent of sins? And yet were they not held accountable to them when they forsook that repentance and pursued those gods again? They did. How about this? Do you think that Moses took the children of Israel and led them into repentance after they did the stuff on the mountain. The idolatry they did at the base of the mountain when he was up there and re receiving the, the commandments. Do you not think Moses took them to a place of, of coming to God and having repentance? And yet does not God remind them later on of what they did? Why is that? If God just forgives and forgets. I mean, Moses, as great of a leader as he was, certainly led the people into a service of ceremony of repentance. Surely the sacrifices were made. Surely the, the things went on and the prayers were said. But when they came back and renounced all of that and picked up their, uh, their sin of rebellion, what did God do? In fact, at one point he says, you have tested me these ten times. That means God counted them. One, two, three. <laughs> so when the enemy comes against you and tells you you have not truly forgiven this person because you still remember it, just laugh in his face and say, God remembers too. He can remember every single one of our sins, but he will not remember them against me. You see, that's the big dif difference. You can have memory of the sin, but don't remember it against them. You see, this man had a remembrance when he came out that this man owed him this much money. But he held it against him. And because he held it against him, 
he was called back in. What's this that you've done? Because you have refused forgiveness. The forgiveness I already extended to you has now been refused. And apparently that's within the rules, guys. <laughs> that's, that's apparently in the rules. He's allowed to do that because he did it. Jesus told the parable of the, of the whole thing. Well, we have to make sure we do it. See, this is what the, the enemy gets us to not focus on. He gets us focus, focusing on forgiving and forgetting. What you're supposed to be doing is the same forgiveness that I received is the same forgiveness I, I extend. By trying to get focus us on forgiving and forgetting, he still has us focused on the sin. He still has us focused on ourselves. What have I let go of? What have I? And we're not supposed to do that. What we're supposed to focus on, Father God, you have forgiven me so much. I just thank you for all that you have forgiven me for. You see, if my eyes are, in, are on him and the great forgiveness that he has bestowed upon me and he has given to me, then when, I, when somebody comes up with, to me with something small, it's, it's not a big deal. I won't remember that against you because my father is not remembering that against me. You see, the motivation in this parable is not the forgive and forget nature of God. The motivation of this parable is be mindful of how great a thing you have been forgiven. And always keep in mind that no matter what someone has done against you, it pales in comparison to what we have done against God. What we have done against God cost him the life of his son. His son being beaten. His son being tortured. His son being nailed to a cross. His son having all the sin of the world put upon him and the father having to turn his back on the son. The son being sent down into hell. All that happened because of our sin. And we want to take what people have done against us and hold that against it. Always keep in mind the greatness of what God has done for us. Don't keep in mind the greatness of what they have done to us. The doctrine of forgive and forget leaves the door open for us to see how great of a sin has been done against us. The doctrine that Jesus pr proposed in the area of forgiveness always focused on how great a forgiveness we have received. Don't focus on the greatness of the forgiveness that you must extend because that's what this man did who lost his forgiveness. He lost sight of how great he was forgiven and caught sight of how great this forgiveness was he needed to extend. And he says, I can't do that. I need some money. I need this. Whatever it might be that he needed, he focused in on that. He says, uh, uh, you're going to pay this to me. And he locked him up in prison. It is that action that caused him to lose that. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, part of the, uh, put in here outline here, part of receiving the forgiveness of God is also freely extending it to others. Here's what it says. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And here, not in a parable, but in a straight-up doctrine of, of him teaching. If you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. 
he teaches the exact same principle that is in the parable. We must extend it. So here's a part in your outline. It is not our memory that needs to be changed by the love of God. It is our heart. It is not our memory that needs to be changed by the love of God. It is our heart. This servant had a wrong heart towards those that were around him. And he did not let the forgiveness, the great forgiveness that came from this master, it didn't change his heart. He had the same heart. I mean, most of us could figure, if I was forgiven a debt that I could never in a lifetime come up with, and that's the the, the debt that it was, never in a lifetime could you have come up with that. If you had none of it, nowhere, you you couldn't come up with it. And if we were truly forgiven that great of a debt, what would such a small amount mean to us by comparison? And that's what we always have to keep in mind. Never focus on the debt that people owe you. Never focus on the sins that they have done against you. Never focus on that. Always stay focused on how great of a debt we have been forgiven. That's where this guy lost it. It ought to have that kind of effect upon your heart. It was the actions of the servant that caused the master to have a change toward him. Always keep that in mind. It was the actions of the servant. It was not the heart attitude on the inside. A lot of times we like to say God looks upon the heart and God does look upon the heart. But it is not the heart attitude that caused him to lose his forgiveness. It was the actions that heart attitude produced. Because of that heart that was on the inside of him, it had an action on the outside. Most of us can't even, con- can't even conceive of doing that. Right after being forgiven such a great amount. Can't even conceive of it. But this guy did. It was not a change in what was remembered, but a change in the attitude toward the servant. The master here did not have a change in what he remembered. He still remembered that he forgave this guy. There was no change in that. It was a change in the attitude. The master had a change of attitude towards the servant. Because before he said he had an attitude of mercy. Now he didn't. That attitude is gone. Simply because of the actions. And if the enemy can get us as Christians to focus on the wrong things, it won't ever change our heart and we are capable of of the same actions that this servant was. And the devil will do the dance of joy because forgiveness will be pulled from us. It is a wrong doctrine. It is a false doctrine. It is a way that God has never exemplified forgiving. These things, when it says in there, he will remember no more. And of course, the the sea of forgetfulness and all this sort of stuff. Folks, if we walk under the righteousness of God, God looks upon us and he doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see it. It's still there, but I don't see that. I see, I see what my son did for you. I, I see that. And that's, that's all that we do. And that's, what, that's what we want. You can, you can certainly see this. How many times have, have you, um, you know, you watched a movie. How many of you watched a movie and there's a certain character in there? You know, my wife and I, we sit and we watch those Hallmark ones or we watch the, the other ones, you know, and we get a kick out of them and we, we enjoy them. But, you know, uh, we'll, they'll come on in, they'll, they'll develop a character. And uh, she'll say to me, I don't like that one. My response to her is always the same. You're not supposed to. (laughs) Because they write these characters in such a way 
that you are, you are not supposed to like them. And they do everything in the script to make sure that you don't like them. Because it's developing that attitude in you by all the things that are going on. Don't follow the script. Don't develop a bad attitude toward people. Don't watch their actions. Keep your eyes focused on what God has done towards us. The great forgiveness that He has done. Because He has done such a great job in forgiving us. Because He has forgiven us such a great debt. Be mindful of that. Now, bring you back to one other, one other thing Jesus taught. Remember when Jesus uh, told the parable of the rich man, pious, came on in to the, to the uh, altar, and next to him is this poor guy. And this uh, poor guy, he just said, oh, Father God, forgive me, a sinner. And the other guy comes in and says, I thank God I'm not like this sinner over here. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an attitude that's in there. Which one, is, uh, which one do you think got forgiven? The one that had the right attitude. That's the one that got forgiven. When he was in the home of Simon. And the woman came in. We looked at that story briefly just, re- just recently. And the woman came in and anointed his feet. Not with a real costly spike nard, but just with some kind of a fragrant oil. Came in and anointed his feet. That whole thing was about forgiveness. And he said to Simon, Simon, who will love him more? Love, love the master more? The one who forgave, was forgiven much? Or the one who was forgiven little? They said, well, I suppose the one who has forgiven much. He said, you've answered wisely. You see, it's not that we've all been forgiven a different amount. It's that some of us are more mindful of what we've been forgiven. Because the sin that we were all born into would send us to hell. And that's what Jesus Christ came to redeem us from. The idea is not that there are some that need to be forgiven less the idea is we've all been forgiven a debt we could not pay. No matter how good we were in our life, we were all forgiven a debt that we in our lifetime could never pay. And Jesus paid it for us. And all he asked of us to do was in the same way we received that forgiveness to go out and forgive others. That's all he asked us to do. But then it got corrupted. And I began to think that I have to forgive. And that's the evidence that I have. Or I have to forget. And that's the evidence that I have forgiven. People have become so focused on forgive and forget. That they lost sight of what Jesus taught. And what we're trying to accomplish in forgiveness. Won't do anything but put us in bondage. And if we're in bondage, we're just going to bring other people into bondage. And it's not going to help. You don't have to forget a single thing that's ever been done to you. But you do have to not hold it against them. That's all. It's easier. <laughs> and it's better. Don't lose sight of what the Word of God actually teaches for what some people want to come along and sell you on religion. Father, we thank you for the great example that we have in the area of forgiveness. Not that all of our sins have been forgotten, but that when we stand with the blood of Jesus, not a single sin we have done will be remembered. Not a single one be brought up and said, what about this that you did? Not a single one will be remembered against us. 
We don't depend upon your memory to forget. We depend upon your blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood provided by the Son that cleansed us, washed us clean. I thank you, Father, that we can go out and forgive the same way that you have. Not that we have to forget everything that's ever been done against us. But we just must never hold it against them. And just as Jesus did on the cross, he looked out at the people that had whipped him, beaten him, accused him, nailed him to the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He didn't hold against them the things that they had done. We can follow your example. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.